This morning we're going to be considering a portion of Mark's gospel, so would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be considering verses 13 through 31. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one relatively close to you in one of the backs of the seats in front of you, and if you're looking for this portion of Scripture, I can help you by telling you that it's on page 794, chapter 10 of Mark's gospel. If you're new to reading your Bible, it would be helpful to know the Big numbers in bold are the chapters, and the smaller numbers there that you find, those are the verses that we're going to be walking through. Mark chapter 10. Let's begin our reading of God's Word in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Would you join in praying with me, asking for the Lord's help as we consider this portion of His Word? Our God and Father, we confess that so often the rules and the structures that we create in our mind, the expectations that we have of the world that we live in are flat out contrary to you and to your kingdom. To even hear and to consider that many who are first will be last, and the last will be first, is absolutely upside down and backwards compared to what we expect in our natural selves. Father, we acknowledge this and we confess this, reminding ourselves of how greatly we need the work and the ministry of your Spirit to not only comprehend the word that you have given to us, but that it might be real in our lives and bear fruit, be seen among us within our congregation, and be lived out in such a way that it bears testimony that your word is true and that you contain and you have the words of life. So, Father, we, help, we ask that you would help us this morning in our ignorance, as was prayed earlier, in the remaining hardness of heart, and especially if there be any who, in this morning, do not have the eyes of faith, 
But Lord, You have not granted new hearts, that You have not granted new life. Lord, we ask and we pray, even as we have heard on the basis of Your own Word, that it is impossible to be saved according to man, but not with You. So Lord, on the basis of You doing what is impossible, do the work that we most need here in our midst, within our lives, our homes, our marriages. Do the work that only the risen Christ can bring about by Your own Spirit, we pray. Amen. The focus of the Gospel of Mark, it begins with a trumpet blast of an announcement back in chapter 1, essentially saying, this is where good news begins. As you turn to the very first chapter of Mark, you are assured and comforted that what you are about to embark on is the unfolding reality of the best news that you could ever hear. And everything that Mark has to write about and direct us in has to do with this declaration of good news, of the gospel. It is a declaration that echoes out from Christ himself in chapter 1, verse 15. As Christ stands and announces, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And so from this announcement, what Mark then goes on to do is to unpack for us, the reader, just what it means to follow this Jesus. If everything has to do with Christ and the good news that he accomplishes and announces, what does it mean to follow this Jesus? And if the kingdom of God is at hand, as Jesus announces, how do I enter? And how do I belong to this kingdom? Well, The answers to those questions that are displayed before us, they unfold as we perpetually make our way through Mark's gospel. And the theme of kingdom and specifically entering the kingdom, are front and center for us here in chapter 10. Perhaps you noticed that as we just read through it, that this repeated phrase, entering the kingdom, whether it's asked in a question or put forward in a statement, essentially becomes the thread that ties these encounters together as we seek to understand what does it mean to enter the kingdom? Who should enter? Who can enter? And what is the standards of entering? And what lies before us this morning is the teaching of Jesus concerning the nature of that kingdom and what it means to enter into it. So what we're going to do this morning is work our way through this passage by considering the demeanor of those who enter, the obvious difficulty for those who enter, but then being reminded of the great dividends given to those who enter. The demeanor, the difficulty, and then lastly, the dividends. What I mean by demeanor is there in verse 13. Listen again to what the Word of God says. And they were bringing children to Him that He might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Something we need to remember is that placing hands on children in order to bless them, specifically in passing down blessing from generation to generation, has a long history Uh, within Israel. Perhaps some of you embarking upon your New Year's Bible reading plan have already encountered this in the book of Genesis and the patriarchs of the laying on of hands to pray a blessing to exhort the children to continue on in the faith that they've been handed. But this practice irritates the disciples and they rebuke the people who brought these children to Jesus for this. Now we're not told directly as to why the disciples responded this way in this moment, but we do know something that Mark has been revealing about the nature of these men. We've been told in chapter 9, verse 34, that there is most certainly a spirit of pride that exists amongst these men as they are arguing as who will be first. We know also in verse 38 of chapter 9 that these disciples had this assumption that they alone had Jesus' authority. 
a bit of a self-centered attitude here within these men. Regardless, Jesus, we're told, is actually indignant with the disciples, and he insists that these children be brought to him. And as we consider this section, it's helpful to remember that the format of Mark's gospel, it's not always chronological, but oftentimes Mark arranges things thematically to make a point in a particular emphasis within a section. Jesus uses this interaction between the disciples and the children to both correct and to teach. And this phrase that we read there, enter the kingdom. It is this thread then that runs through the rest of the section that's going to help tie together the very emphasis that Jesus is making and Mark is putting forward for us by the Spirit. Within this rebuke, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach about the kingdom of God and then specifically, who does this kingdom belong to? What sort of kingdom is it? And he emphasizes here in this rebuke that whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Clearly, this cannot mean that what Jesus is saying is that all children belong to the kingdom of God because they are children. Jesus is not teaching that all children are innocent and therefore perfect models of the kingdom. If you've begun to think that way, may I encourage you to sign up for our children's ministry. You've either never been around children, or you've forgotten what it means to be a child. Innocence is not the point that Jesus is making. Nor is Jesus saying that children are more pure and more spiritual beings attuned to the things of God, and therefore we should follow after them. Because Jesus has already plainly taught, unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Therefore, Jesus must be speaking about more than age or height, as he's talking about this particular kingdom. We know Jesus is using a simile. These words, like a, should jump out at us off the text and reason that Jesus is speaking of receiving the kingdom like a child. Meaning, if we want to know the type of person who belongs to the kingdom, we should look to children for some sort of help. Among other things, children are a lesson in weakness and dependence. Each blessed morning, and often many hours throughout the night, parents are awakened by the persistent reminder that children are persistently needy and weak. They are dependent. They are not self-sufficient. And therefore, looking to children, as Jesus teaches here, reminds us that the, the demeanor of those who enter the kingdom is not that of self-sufficiency, it's not that of might, but it is actually admitted weakness and dependency. In saying that, we need to call out and remind ourselves that this is not only true generally, it's true, first of all, in the way that we enter the kingdom. The Bible is quite plain. Person enters the kingdom of God not on the basis of some merit of boasting in what they've achieved, not upon how holy they are, meaning what you've done or what you haven't done, not about how knowledgeable you are or how faithful you are. A Christian, according to Scripture, is one who is genuinely convinced of their weakness. They know something of indwelling sin. They are convinced they are unable to purify themselves. They are convinced that the standard that God requires, they cannot meet. They are aware of this abiding sense of weakness. And they're not resting on their own merit, but trusting in the merits of Christ. This is true of weakness. It's true in our dependence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's the way Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, is he begins to describe really the manifesto of the kingdom of God. What do the people of God in the kingdom of God look like? They're weak. They mourn over sin. And they're humbled by it. Entering the kingdom of God like a child means that we know to some degree who we are and how weak we are. But it's not just the way that we enter the kingdom. The scriptures would also remind us that this meekness and dependence is the way that we continue throughout this Christian life. But the trouble with us is that while we can understand, okay, entering like a child, I've got to admit my weakness, my need for Christ, I see that. But surely growth in Christ means independence. Growth in Christ means power. Growth in Christ means self-sufficiency and greater influence. Surely, I don't have to be dependent forever. I mean, doesn't maturity in Christ mean I learn to stand on my own feet? I grow less and less dependent as I grow in Christ? Well, what does the Bible say? What are the images that Scripture often uses? For one, we're sheep following a shepherd. That means that we are dependent upon this shepherd. Here we could say, well, there's something to do with children, needy, weak, and dependent upon whom? A heavenly father. Sheep, children, and father, shepherds. These are the images that again and again show up in Scripture. And yet, even when we know this, we despise weakness. We adore strength. And despite the fact that the entire Bible holds up the honor of of weakness and the downfall of strength, we continue to persist in these inconsistencies. Are you familiar with King Uzziah? Have you gotten to that portion as you reread God's word? 2 Chronicles 26. It's an interesting summary. I hope you read biography. And I hope you read the biography of Scripture. Listen to what it says about King Uzziah. This is 2 Chronicles 26, verse 1. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread over the whole border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and the valley gate and the angle, and he fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut down many cisterns. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war, an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army, shields and spears and helmets, coats of mail, bows, stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he grew strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told in more detail of that, that when Uzziah did this and was confronted by the priests, that the Lord struck Uzziah with leprosy. And the byline of Uzziah's life is that Uzziah died a leper. What a sobering testimony. Here was a man marvelously helped till he was strong. And in his strength, he became proud. And in his pride, he was destroyed. He was a leper. Church, we live in a culture 
that adores the virtue of independence. Therefore, we must be on guard against the vice of independence. To be entirely self-sufficient, it's not a mark of the Christian life. Yet, the current Christian culture is enamored with strength. And our own hearts love to eat it up. We love to boast in our victories and to hide and bury our shortcomings. We parade around our good works for everyone to see and we cover our sin. This is the fatal weakness of strength which actually stands opposed to the strength of admitted weakness. The posture of the kingdom of heaven, it's not boastful strength. It is actually the weakness of dependence. Therefore, do not be surprised, Christian, if this is your experience. If you begin to feel the weakness of your life, of your own self-righteousness, your own inability to be God, it may just be that you are being reminded you're not Him. And that God in His gracious mercy humbles us to remind us, I'm not as strong as I think I am. Let's be perfectly clear on this. This weakness is expressed first and foremost in our need for Christ and all that He supplies. This weakness is expressed when I acknowledge I need His holiness. I need His wisdom. I need His grace. But secondly, admitted weakness will not only be seen in the degree that we acknowledge our need for Christ. Church, our Weakness will be seen in the degree that we admit we need one another. Discipleship only works when we admit weakness. Do you understand that? We see the community of the local church and we see the care as we serve one another. Essentially as only those when we see our need. If we do not see that we have need, you will not see your purpose or the value of the church. A proud and independent, self-sufficient person does not see God's church as God's means for their discipleship. It ought to be normative to confess sin to one another. It ought to be normative to admit weakness, to speak of areas of temptation and struggle Expressing this dependence upon one another, expressing weakness to one another, is normative because it is the demeanor of the kingdom of God. In a sense, we expose our true citizenship when we confess we are weak. We betray our citizenship when we insist that we are self-sufficient. And Christ says, look at these children and learn. It's not only the demeanor that he speaks of, but he also goes on to speak of the difficulty for those who would enter. Look back at verse 17. Just after this encounter, remember, listen for this thread, enter the kingdom. As he was sitting, setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I'm not sure what's more amazing here upon first read, the man's request or Jesus' response. Here's a man desperately aware of his need, and he's asking Jesus for eternal life. Any of you who have sought to share your faith have prayed for opportunities to preach the gospel. You pray for this opportunity. 
the person who runs up to you and says, how do I be a Christian? How do I inherit eternal life? What must I do? It seems, though, upon first read, and maybe you thought this, that Jesus has just been thrown the biggest, fattest pitch that you would expect him to hit out of the park, to put his hand on his shoulder and say, let's pray. But he doesn't. Instead of that, Jesus asks him some questions. And as Jesus often does, he's leading him somewhere, leading this man because of the great difficulty concerning the kingdom that has to be dealt with. It's a difficulty that this man did not understand. A difficulty that this man did not understand. On one level, notice this man is concerned with eternal life, but what he must do. Remember, all of this is in contrast to the previous teaching. It's meant to strike us. For Jesus has just been teaching that we receive the kingdom as a child. And this man is questioning what he must do. So Jesus says to him, essentially, if you're really concerned about goodness, let's remember that God alone is good, and let's consider what this good God has said. That's the connection between the goodness of God and the law of God. Do you see that? The goodness of God is expressed in the law of God. And so he says, let's go to this good God and listen to what he says. And the way in which Jesus does this is by pointing to him to what we could call the second table of the law. He points him to the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandment. Essentially, everything could be summed up here is love your neighbor as yourself. That's where Jesus goes with this man. And notice that in each of these, the emphasis here is horizontal towards his fellow man. And according to this man, his understanding of goodness was good. I've kept all these since my youth. Now think for a moment of this sort of man. I imagine if we saw this man, if we knew of him in our community, if we happened to work with him, go to school with him, we would say, oh, I, I, I know that man. He is a nice man. He is so caring. He is so self-sacrificial. Sometimes we'll say, that man, he will give you the shirt off of his back. He's a real salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. Yes, but niceness does not save you. There are nice men in hell. There are moral women in hell. This man knows he still lacks something. This is the admission in verse 20. I've done all these things. Remember? I'm coming to you, Jesus, about this eternal life, about this kingdom. Okay, I hear all that. I've done that. There's got to be something else. And so what does Jesus do? Essentially, he moves his finger from the second table over to the first table. He puts his finger right over the first commandment. And he asks this man, he commissions him to go, sell, give. What he does is not a prescription as how to enter the kingdom, but a diagnosis of why this man is not in the kingdom. What he does is he moves his finger over to this man's God of wealth, and he says, do you love this more than me? Do you love me? More than this, Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, puts his finger on the deeper issue. The one that exposed the idol of his failure to love God and love his neighbor as himself. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet this man went away disheartened because he realized the very thing that was being asked of him, he could not do because that was his God. And the motive for bringing this up, friends, do not miss this, is love. It is loving to point to the law of God to show the will of God. If we don't understand that, then we misunderstand love and we misunderstand God. 
he looked at this man and he loved him. Because the man is dead wrong about his condition. He's dead wrong about his assessment of his own greatness and the standard of God's law. He looked at him and he loved him and he said, You lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. There's your answer. Now, Jesus' purpose is to puncture the young man's sense of self-righteousness. He's not contradicting the emphasis that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, but he's enforcing it. Sir, you asked what you must do. You are talking about efforts and requirements, and I'm telling you that this is the sort of effort, this is the requirement that is required. If you are asking about the kingdom, if you are asking about eternal life, there shall be no other gods before me. And by calling him to sell what he possesses and give the profits to the poor, he simultaneously exposes this two-pronged test here. Does this man love me more than money? And does this man love his neighbor more than himself? Love God. Love neighbor. Sir, I'm sorry, but you've failed on both accounts. And by pointing to the law of God, Jesus exposes the real love of the man's heart. And unfortunately, the story doesn't end well because this man went away, according to Mark, sorrowful because, lo and behold, as Jesus knows, he had many possessions. For this man, the cost was too high. What this man did not understand and did not realize and what he was unwilling to reconcile with is that the bar for entry was actually much higher than he anticipated. It was a standard that he did not want to give up treasure. And a standard that must be met, obedience to the law. This is the difficulty that was unique to this man. But let's not move on too quickly and let's acknowledge this is a difficulty that's common to us all. Look how this plays out in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. What Jesus is saying essentially is, do not think that this is a problem for the 1% of society. Do not read this and do not hear this as, okay, this is the verse for everybody who makes more money than me. So obviously, I'm going to sit this one out and pick back up in a couple of verses. The root issue here is not what's on your tax return. The root issue here is the greater concern of the universal problem within every human heart. Granted, Jesus does not ask everyone to sell everything that you have and give to the poor. This was the issue he was dealing with this particular man to expose his inability and unwillingness to keep the first commandment. Nevertheless, there is most certainly a cost for every follower of Christ. If wealth is not your God, something else is. And the commandment is clear. You shall have no other gods before me. And make no mistake, we all have false gods that we're reluctant to give up. And if we are unwilling to give up our idols, then we will walk away in great sorrow just like this man. The difficulty is one that is common to us all. What we're asking here is, how do I know I'm a Christian? Well, in part, it's going to mean that I agree with God that these idols exist. And secondly, that I repent of them. Not just once, 20 years ago, but as a lifelong existence. That I recognize that my heart 
is a perpetual factory of idols. And therefore, as long as I go on sinning, I go on repenting. There is a cost associated with the kingdom. Please don't let anyone ever tell you differently. If you have heard that, that there is no cost, all benefit, that there is nothing required of you but to show up and belong, friend, you've been misled. Jesus is very clear that there is a cost in following him. Jesus will not allow us to clutch our sinful idols in one hand and metaphorically raise our other hand in praise of him. He will deal with the clutched hand because he loves you. He looks at you and he loves you. And when Jesus does that, he will patiently and mercifully expose the idols of your heart just as he's done with this man. The allure of riches is a real danger that every single one of us need to recognize. It's very easy to fall in love with riches. You might not think so on first glance, but then you soon realize that wealth brings such tangible benefits. Good food, preferred clothing, ideal housing, entertainment, access to quality medical care. Wealth essentially serves to underwrite our propensity towards idolatry. It funds the gods that we love. Wealth brings security. Don't deny it. Wealth brings comfort. Wealth brings approval. And more accurately, it brings temporary security, temporary comforts, temporal approval than without it. Of course, we know that real security, real comfort, real approval, it's another matter. Listen to how Solomon put it in this paradoxical statement. Proverbs 18.10 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city like a high wall in his imagination. Or to paraphrase, The Lord is the strong tower of the righteous in truth. Wealth is the fortified city of the rich in their imagination. In Jesus' words, riches are more often a hindrance than a help in pressing matters of our souls. So much so that in verse 24 and 25, he says it's like trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. Don't overthink it. It's not possible. That's the point. Keep that in mind. With man, it's impossible. That's the line of thinking that Jesus is taking here. Now keep in mind the cultural assumption that Jesus is setting little landmines in here and about to detonate on his way out. These landmines and these wrong thinking are that wealth is the tangible evidence of God's blessing upon your life. That teaching, unfortunately, has not died. It is still a cancer within America and the American church, and it's being exported all over the world. Wealth is not the tangible evidence that you are blessed by God. The disciples wrongly assume that because when they hear how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, in their mind they're thinking, if anybody is closer to the kingdom of God, it is the wealthy. Jesus, you're saying now that the first might actually be last? That it's actually easier to go through the eye of a needle than for this rich man to enter the kingdom, which I thought he was most certainly close to. I mean, look at how God has blessed him. And if those whom God was apparently blessing were having such difficulty to enter the kingdom, the logical conclusion as the disciples come to is, who can be saved? Jesus recognizes their struggle and he says two things to them. He speaks to them about the impossibility of any human activity to bring about the salvation that they need. And the truth that God is not limited as people are. Men who cannot, but God who can. Meaning, there is no earthly status that provides a heavenly advantage. Do you believe that? And yet... 
what we do today is we still pick up on these same kind of distinctions. On one hand, we think, oh, they came from a good home. They grew up in the church. There's no history of grievous sin in their life. Surely they will be saved. And we do the opposite, don't we? She comes from an unbelieving home. She spent her college years in sensuality, pleasure, drunkenness, godless living. And then we say things like, it'll be a miracle if she gets saved. The sort of thinking that this reflects is entirely wrong and unbiblical. Circumstances, wealth, morality, and upbringing are nowhere near moving the Richter scale of more or less likely to be saved. From the perspective of earthly status, no one has an advantage. Jesus goes so far to say that from a human perspective, it is a matter of impossibility for man to be saved. The upright, moralistic, family-loving man is no more likely to be saved than the debased, unfaithful, wife-abusing man. From the standpoint of what each brings to the table, they both lie at the chasm of impossibility. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. We must see that the hope of conversion lies not with man, but with God. This ought to be a warning and an encouragement to us, church. A warning in thinking against that this person will be saved or most surely will be accepted because of what they have done or haven't done. It's also an encouragement that there is no one beyond saving. Who are we to consider that this person might be the poster child of impossible to save? According to man, yes. According to God, no. Friends, therefore, in our evangelism, let's be leery of judging books by their cover. Let's be leery of assuming, and let's trust in the promises of God, in the power of God. Let's be on guard against being overly presumptive or overly pessimistic. Salvation is impossible within the realm of man, but all things are possible within the realm of God. This is the difficulty that must be overcome. But let's close by considering the dividends of those who enter. This is found in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, in light of all of this, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But the many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now Peter, being the observant one, raises the issue of their own sacrifice. And I'm so glad he did. The man, with great riches, just walked away from Jesus. But Peter and the others had left everything and followed Jesus. And so Peter, hand in the back, says, what does that mean for us? How does Jesus respond? There is a cost associated with this kingdom. But any temporal loss is far outweighed by the dividends that God pays. Now, Jesus is not speaking about those who've left things or people because of some preference for living off-grid and solar or moving out into the wilderness and living off the land. He's not just talking about moving for any sake and leaving for any sake. He is saying, those who've left all these things for my name's sake, for the gospel. Jesus is speaking about those who recognize something of his worth, the goodness of the gospel, and that they're willing to give up whatever necessary for his glory. And according to Jesus, 
what may look like voluntary earthly impoverishment will be met with rich reward. God will be a debtor to no man. Consider what Jesus says, that it's a guaranteed dividend. Verse 29, it is a guaranteed dividend. Jesus says, there is not one person who will give up anything for the gospel that will not receive a hundredfold. And the emphasis and the certainty of this guarantee, it's set off by the phrase, truly, I say to you. It's a guaranteed dividend. And according to Jesus, what looks like impoverishment is actually going to be rewarded for my sake. It's a guaranteed dividend. Verse 30, it's an immediate dividend. Consider what Jesus says. By immediate, I mean earthly, here and now, in this time, just as Jesus says. Now, we might expect, if we know our Bibles at this point, for Jesus to say, look, if you give up earthly comforts and earthly wealth, you can expect to receive heavenly reward where moth and rust do not destroy. Give now, you will gain later. But Jesus though that is true, does not emphasize that here. Jesus speaks of a present dividend. These are the rewards that are unique to the people of God. They are the sweetest treasures that are unearthed and discovered amongst God's people in the church. The enjoyment, the delight, the security that comes through a home will be offset a hundredfold by what Christ is able to bring through the homes of others. Any comfort, enjoyment, or security that would be given up by leaving earthly fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters will be offset a hundredfold through mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers in Christ's body. Dear Christian. Christ has called us to go into the world. And what that means is that we either are working to send others, or we will be the ones sent. And the costs associated with such sending and going will never leave us without. If he's calling you to go for the sake of the gospel... He will surely provide a wealth of provisions through his own body. Pray. Pray that God would raise up more laborers for his harvest, convinced of the worthwhile sacrifice of leaving for the gospel. Those who enter the kingdom are convinced that there is a dividend to be paid now through Christ's body. But it gets better because verse 30 says that it's not only an immediate dividend, but it says it's also an eternal dividend. And all of this, eternal life. While this earthly life will be enriched by the blessings of church family and hospitality, there remains a rest for the people of God. And as sweet as those earthly rewards are, there is an earthly dividend. And interestingly enough, this ends right where it began, the concern of eternal life. The rich young ruler began questioning eternal life. And Jesus says it will be given to those who follow after him. There's the answer. Friends, this world is not our home. Have any of you ever heard the story of the missionary Henry Morrison? I believe he was a Methodist missionary, a faithful missionary who served the Lord in Africa for uh, four decades. He writes in his journal of his return home to America in the early 1900s, as they, and they happened to be on the same ship coming back from Africa as President Theodore Roosevelt, who was also returning to America from one of his famous safaris in Africa. And as the ship pulled up into the port in New York, it became clear upon their ears and eyes that there were suddenly thousands of people who were there to greet, no doubt, the president. Crowds cheered, the bands played, flags, banners, the whole bit, billboards everywhere saying, welcome home. But, as Henry Morrison writes, he and his wife, they walked down the gangplank onto the shore. It was clear there was no one there to meet them. No band. No banners, 
no cheers, no welcome home. Later that evening, he writes of how he became greatly discouraged and with a heavy heart said to his wife, for 40 years we poured our lives into missionary service. And yet we come back to America and not a single soul to welcome us home. Her response, Henry, you've forgotten something. You're not home yet. The counsel of a good wife. What he realized and what she knew is that there is hope for the citizens of the kingdom of God. Because we might often face loss, we might often face setback, even persecution for the sake of the gospel. But Christ promises that no man will ever be able to say that he was worse off for any sacrifice he made. Church, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And this impossibility becomes possible because Christ himself took on human flesh dying a sacrificial death, resurrected in power. And so consider how, as the king of this kingdom, perfectly demonstrates everything that we've seen here in Mark's gospel. Christ took on weakness. He took on the weakness of human flesh and displayed the greatest dependence upon his father in every moment, in every day, right up to his death upon the cross. He literally exemplified weakness is the means of this kingdom. Weakness is the embodiment of this kingdom. Christ also kept the law. Loving neighbor and loving God perfectly at the cost of his own life. Christ gave up everything. He laid aside honor and yet The Father has rewarded His obedience by bestowing upon Him the name that is above every name. We enter the kingdom of Christ because Christ entered before us. That is the answer to the man's question. That is the announcement that Mark brings in church. That is the hope that we find our refuge in. Our God and Father, we rejoice to hear that there is such a good answer to such an important question that you have accomplished all that we need, that you have opened the door because you have entered before us. So, Father, we pray that you would help us in our common tendency to exalt strength and despise weakness. Help us in all the ways that you convict us of sin and expose weakness to drive us to yourself, confessing our sin, our need for grace. Grow us in our ability and our tendency to admit weakness, to confess sin to one to another as we seek to exalt Christ in all of our weakness that he might be glorified. Lord, we pray and we ask that you would continue to convince us of these truths to such a degree that we would be among those who are willing to say, yes, there is a cost. I am glad to pay it and I willingly do so for Christ my King. Help us in the many areas that we need this to be applied to our lives, that you might be seen as the one who is worthy of all of our praise. We do pray. Amen.